Good morning. If we haven't met before, my name's Aubrey, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a copy, of, if you brought along a copy of the Bible, please find our gospel reading, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, starting in verse 25 that Eric just read for us. Last week, we began a series of sermons where we're going to take some of the parables in the Gospel of Luke between now and the time that Lent begins. And then at Lent, which is the season of preparation for Easter, we'll shift to a different series. We began this series by looking at this parable, the parable of the father with two sons. And last week, we focused on the father and the younger son. And it's a very dramatic story told in seven movements. And in the last movement, it ends with this amazing party that the father throws. Listen again to the end of of that. This is Luke chapter 15, verses 23 and 24, the last two verses before our text for this week. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And that's where we ended last week with that party and that's where we pick up this week. The party is just getting started. And this week we're focusing on the last part of the parable, the part that focuses in on the relationship between the father and the older son. Now, you need to know that if you did a literary analysis of the narrative structure, and I know that sounds quite nerdy, but people like Daniel Zimmerman find those words very exciting, and he often sleeps, and so I'm trying to get him back anyway. If you do a structural analysis of the two parts, even though the part about the father and the younger son is much longer, they both run in exact parallel. The, the, relation, the, the bit about the younger son, the bit about the older son, they're in perfect parallel structure, except the relationship between the father and the younger son has seven movements. The part about the father and the older son only has six movements, and it's so perfectly parallel that you're supposed to catch that, which you would catch. And um, we'll come back to that at the end. But here we go. The, the, the part about the father and the older son, it begins with the older son hearing the party. Okay? That's the first movement. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So in the first movement, the older son hears the party going on. Some of you parents, you've arrived home to hear a party going on. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on here. Now, in that culture, here's the way it would play out. As soon as the father decided to invite the whole village and to butcher a calf all of the attention in the village would have been on that house, the house of the father. Now, I grew up, I I was born in New Orleans, and all of my people are from rural Louisiana. And we have one of these gifts of heaven called a cochon delay. Now, some of you weren't raised near heaven like I was, and so I should help you understand this. A cochon delay is what the Acadian people or the Cajun people do when they take a whole young pig, and they roast the whole thing. And Now, I came from the Baptist side of the Cajuns, so we drank tea and enjoyed this occurring. But there's another part of the Cajuns that use different beverages. 
And, and, and the party start, this is the key. The party started, starts in a cochandelet when you start cooking. It was different in the Middle East. They would not have roasted this calf whole. What would have happened is they would have divided him up into pieces and they would have given these different pieces to different people and they would have been cooked in bread ovens and they would have timed it so that it was ready when the men came home from working in the fields, all right? So the whole village knows what's going on, but all of the kind of able-bodied men are out in the fields working. They don't necessarily know what's going on, but in this village, they're getting ready for a party. Now, some of the meat would have been done earlier than others. And in an ancient Near Eastern context, when the meat gets ready, some pieces of it, it goes to the host house and the musicians begin to play. And the musicians playing is the cue to the village, come on over, right? The hors d'oeuvres are out, the meat, things are starting. And so they did, it's the opposite of a wedding that has a definite start and the music's at the end. All right, the, the party time, all the dancing and stuff. These kind of parties had a rolling start and the music and the singing was the kind of beginning of it, the kicking off of it. Now, so the sun comes home when this is happening. So what this means is that people are beginning to arrive. They're drawn by the singing and the dancing. And um, what's going on there is they've got some sort of pipe instrument and drums. And they would have the best musicians playing. Uh, everybody would be singing. And people would be clapping. And the best male dancers, which is maybe not the right phrase in today's concert context, but the best men dancers would kind of take their time. The children weren't, they didn't get to go into the party. They were outside in the courtyard, like watching the adults party so they could learn to do it in the appropriate way. And they're practicing their dance moves and all that. So the, the, the older son comes home, he hears the music, the drums, the clapping, the singing, the instruments. He, he hears all this going on and he calls out probably to one of those boys, one of those young boys. And look at, this is the second movement. The older son finds out the reason for the party. All right, notice verse 26. He called one of the servants or, or young boys and he asked what these things meant. Like, what's this party all about? And the boy said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this story probably your whole life. It's easy to underestimate that whoever came up with this story had a unique intelligence. And I mean that. I, I'm convinced that Jesus took years to, to compose this story. It, it's remarkable. And it operates on so many levels at the same time. And one of the amazing, brilliant things that Jesus does is so much of the meaning is caught up in tiny shifts of phrases. Okay? So pay close attention. The older son wants to know what the party's for. And notice verse 27, the answer, your brother has come and it doesn't say that's what the party's for. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because. 
So it doesn't say your brothers come home, that's why we're having the party. It says your brothers come home and we're having a party because. So the reason for the party comes next. Because the father has received him back safe and sound. Now, it doesn't sound like a big difference. It might sound like I'm splitting hairs, which is a thing I I probably couldn't do very well, right? Obviously. (laughs) But the difference here is critical. The party is not a celebration of the younger son. It is a celebration of the father's successful efforts at reconciling the son to himself and to the village. Look, that phrase at the end, safe and sound, he has, the party is because the father has received him safe and sound. Uh, Here's the deal. This was originally written in, in the Greek language. And the Greek word in the original here is the word hagion. Now, it's the root of our English word. I'm saying it in Greek. Hagionio is another version. I'm saying it in Greek so that you can hear it. The root, it's the root word in English for hygiene. Okay? You can hear it. Hagionio, hygiene. Now, in ordinary usage, it means good health. But here's the catch. Jesus, the Jews of Jesus' day, would have read the Old Testament in Greek. The Old Testament had been translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And they would have read it in its Greek translation. Remember Alexander the Great had rolled through the whole world and and Hellenism had occurred and Greek language had become the lingua franca, right, of everything. So they were reading the Old Testament in its Greek translation. And this word, this word is used 11 times in the Bible Jesus read, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used 11 times in All 11 times, it translates shalom. It translates either shalom 10 times and then a cognitive shalom one time. All right, so what this means is that the strong evidence from the Greek translation of the Old Testament means that Jesus telling this story most likely used the word shalom. And when his telling of the story was written into Greek, it was written in the Greek in the same way shalom is always translated, hagianya. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the father received the boy in good health, but shalom means so much more than that. The Christians, Christians have always related to this word shalom, and the Jewish people have always known that shalom is not just one-dimensional. It's about being deeply, healthily related in four dimensions, to God, to others, to yourself, and to the natural world. Well, remember, this younger son was out of sorts with everything, with his community, with himself. The natural world was a famine. He was dying from that. He was, un- he was alienated from the father. And so what all of this means is, again, the reason for the party, your brother has come and your father has killed, your father threw the party because your father reconciled the son 
to himself, to the village, to creation, and to God. That's the reason for the party. The party is because the father has done this unexpected, costly, self-giving act of love that healed the son, that restored the son, that reconciled the younger son. And so we don't have to do that kazaza ceremony we talked about last week. The party is because we can't believe there's a father like this who can pull off that kind of healing. And he did it in somebody's life. Now, that's, that's what the, the older brother is told is the reason for the party. And that brings us to the third movement. This is the first part of verse 28. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. Now, if you were a good Middle Eastern peasant hearing the story, your response to that phrase, but he was angry and refused to go in, would have been, holy cow. Like, that's not right. You see... If there's a party, the older brother has a job. This has played out for centuries. This, ha- this has happened so much, it, it, they know what it is. The older brother's job at a big party is to receive the guest, to make sure they feel welcome, they have enough to eat, they have enough to drink, and they had this curious way of doing it. If it was a really special party, the older son would take off his shoes why? Who, who didn't have shoes? Servants. So the older son would take off his shoes as a way of saying, Eric, we are so glad you are at our party. Our oldest son is your servant. You, you honor us so much with your presence that our oldest son is taking the form of a servant to take care of you. Wow, this is really special. That was his job. And so when he doesn't do that, When he refuses to go in, everybody would have been like, oh boy, this is weird. This this never, it would be like going to a wedding and the groom sitting in the back corner like this, refusing to go up on the aisle. You'd be like, this ain't right. We've been to weddings before and that's not how it's done. And that brings us to the fourth movement. The end of verse 28. His father came out. And it treated him. Now, if you were a good Middle Eastern peasant at the time, when you heard Jesus say that, you would have said, ooh. Because if this had occurred, the father's response would be to not even dignify such a shameful act with noticing it. He ignores it and deals with it later. This is an unspeakably publicly painful act of insult and the father going out to leaving the banquet and going out to find this son this father is once again walking down a gauntlet of shame it's the identical move that he did with the younger son when he ran down the street taking the shame on himself. So in that culture, the father's journey from the banquet hall to the courtyard for the sake of his older son is actually more costly and more humiliating than his public run down the street to rescue the younger son. Now, remember if you were with us last week, when, when the father did this incredibly costly, unexpected act of love for the younger son, how did the younger son respond? Do you remember that was the moment that the younger son's arrogance 
and rebellion and pride and hatred and all of his, his commitment to his supposed freedom, which was really foolish rebellion. That was the moment where it broke. And in response to that, the younger son said, I've sinned. And he repented. Now, Pretend you've never heard the story before. That's what happened the last time this really odd father that nobody had ever imagined would do these things. The last time he did it, it was so powerful, it reconciled the son. So we've got two up. What's about to happen? Is this party about to get elevated to a Cajun, Cachandelet? Like real excitement time? Verse 29. But the older son, he answered the father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Now at that point, if you were in the audience, you would have went, <gasps> like, that's a big deal right there. You killed the fattened calf for him. Now, this is a rage-filled speech. This is a blistering series of five insults. This is like Mike Tyson body blows over and over and over. First of all, he doesn't address the father with a title. Now, you Midwestern Mennonite Harrisonburg people, you don't believe in saying yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, to adults, and you've messed up my kids because I expect it of them, and you don't expect it of them, and so they end up getting in trouble at home because they're, but look, where I grew up, right, so I was born in New Orleans, all my people were rural Louisiana, I mean, the fur would fly, right? If my mama or my daddy said something, even now I say yes, ma'am, and yes. I called my wife's parents Mr. and Mrs. Hickey, okay? So like I come from a place in the world where titles, it's, it's an honor-shame culture, not this flat egalitarian culture. Y'all have invented, <laughs> invented up here in Harrisonburg. Not to mention the fact that all through the story so far, titles are used, right? That's, now, you might not like it. You might think Jesus should have grown up and done it different, but you didn't get to be Jesus. This was the culture he was in. It was honor-shame culture. And the son said, look, not father. And that was definitely an insult everybody listening to the story would have recognized. Second. When he says at the end of verse 29, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, he's accusing the father of favoritism. And if you could read this in Greek, this sentence is so egocentric. It's impossible to do literally to pick up that in the English language, but it's sort of, if we could expand on it, it's sort of like the son is saying, you obviously love this worthless fellow more than you love me. You gave him a calf. I haven't even gotten a goat from you. You don't love me. And he's saying this publicly. Like this is not a side. This is in the middle of the wedding, the father of the bride yelling at the bride. Like everybody is at the windowsill watching and listening, right? Third insult, it's at the beginning of verse three. Notice how he refers to his brother, this son of yours. Now look, this is a big deal because in verse 27, the little boy, when he asked the, the servant boy or the little boy in the courtyard, what's the party for? The little boy says, uh, your father has killed the fat calf because your brother. 
That's verse 27. And then in verse 32, when the father talks about what's going on, he says, your brother. And those two phrases form like uh, bookends around verse 30, where the brother refuses to admit it. And so you're supposed to be caught by your brother, your brother beginning, but in the middle, this, your son. And you should hear it dripping with that kind of contempt and that kind of hatred. The fourth insult comes at the end of verse 30, where he says that the younger brother has devoured your property with <gasps> prostitutes. Now, look, here, there's a problem we've got. Many, if you grew up in the church, you've heard this story. You, you might have heard it a bunch. And so because you heard the older brother say that, you've always assumed it. But the older brother is a jerk. And he's in, uh, Phil and Leanne have used this phrase with Janelle and I about TV fighting, where when you get really mad, the truth comes out, which is baloney, right? If you've ever gotten really mad, what comes out doesn't normally heal or bring clarity, right? <laughs> this isn't TV fighting. In fact, earlier in the story in verse 13, we're told that the younger son squandered his property in reckless living. Now, you Mennonites, you're going to love this. Reckless living literally means expensive living. Yeah, like, oh, really? Like, I mean, you can appreciate this, Eric, right? That's what he did wrong. There, there's no shade of immorality at all when we're told by the narrator what the little brother did. It doesn't shade over into bad, like, immorality stuff. It's only the older brother who does it. And here's the deal. The older brother, I think, is trying to get the younger brother killed because that was a capital offense. And the father for allowing it and throwing a party instead of prosecuting the son is a bad dad. So he picks up this word that in that culture, when you start throwing that accusation around, it leads to deadly fighting. At this point, if the courtyard around the house was a middle school, like lunchroom, the circle starts pushing guys into each other. So they start fighting. He's filled with rage. He's raging out of control. And that brings us to the fifth and the climactic vicious attack on the father. You killed the fatted calf for him. Now, the son has already been told why the father killed the fatted calf. And it wasn't for the younger brother. It was to celebrate the father's amazing love that reconciled the younger brother. The son's been told that. We've already been told that by the narrator. The father said it in verse 23. The little boy in the courtyard said it in verse 27. Your, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatty calf because he has received him. So why did the older brother say this? Well, you know how anger works. You know that when you've committed yourself to a line, to a narrative, to an explanation, even though you've heard it, you either refuse to hear it or you can't hear it. You killed for him the fatted calf. The guest would not be at the banquet if that was true. Because they would not celebrate a prodigal son. The shrill, shouting, vain, bulging accusation that the banquet is to celebrate a sinner is not the truth. 
the banquet, what he's doing is this is his final vicious attack on his father's integrity. He hates the father. He's overwhelmed with hatred for the father. And this leads us to the sixth movement. How does the father respond? With love. The father's loving invitation. Verse 31, and the father said to him, son, he actually uses in Greek the word technon, which almost means my child. It's this beautiful, tender word. It's like he's saying, I see all of this anger, this rage, and I see that little boy in you. And he says, my child, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Look, I hope you're beginning to feel something of the cultural setting that gives this story its pop. At this moment, the father would have been expected to explode and order a thrashing of his son for the public insults. Surely the father could have cried out in a loud voice, enough, I don't have to take this anymore. I've given you so much. I I, I came out to you, lock him up. I'll deal with him later. And if that had been the story, it still would have been an amazing story of an amazing father. In that culture, they still would have seen it that way. But that's not what this father does. Yet again, this father, who is unlike any father, anyone listening to Jesus tell the story had or could even imagine. Look, what, what's going on here is that Jesus is taking these passages in the Old Testament. We read one this week. We read one last week that refer to God as father. And they always, when the Old Testament refers to God as father, it always deals with tenderness, compassion, creation, and protection, okay? He's taking those and he's adding to them a few passages. There are a couple of passages in the Old Testament that don't call God father. So God, the fatherhood of God is a metaphor in the Old Testament. God as mother is a simile in the Old Testament, okay? So he's taking the metaphor of God as father, adding it to the simile, and he's showing us an amazingly compassionate father who's full of motherly tenderness. And what basically in chapter 12, Jesus gave his, his followers the Our Father prayer, the Lord's prayer. And in chapter 15, he gives the Our Father his greatest definition that he ever gives it. So when you say Our Father, it's this kind of father, not your daddy, not the best daddy you've ever imagined, not your friend's dad that you wish was your dad, but a dad that explodes all of those categories and is this un unbelievable father. And so here is this father responding to all of that hatred, all of those insults with my child. And then what he does is he invites the older son into joy. That's, it's just remarkable. So this, this is the third parable of a three parable package. Luke chapter 15 tells three parables all in answer to one question. They're meant to be read together. In the first parable, you've got the shepherd and the 99 sheep and the one lost sheep. The shepherd picks up the lost sheep with joy. And then he rejoices with his friends at a party. And then heaven rejoices over finding the lost sheep. And then in the second parable, the parable of the woman and the lost coin, we find that the woman rejoices 
with her friends when she finds the lost coin and heaven joins in the joy. And then here in Luke chapter 15, when the father saves the younger son, he orders a banquet where all can have joy, make merry. And the entire village is drawn in to the joy. And here at the end, the father defends his joy as he urges the older son to come into the joy. What I'm saying is that what, in Luke 15, joy flows from the one who pays the price to find the lost. And it engulfs the one who accepts being found. Jesus is saying to this brother, you're so full of anger. It is eating you alive. I offer you joy. But it flows from me. I've come to find you. I, knew, I know you've been growing this anger for decades. I know it's just now coming out. And if you will let me find you, the joy that I have will engulf you. And what does the older son do? We don't know. The seventh movement is missing. Why? Now remember, Jesus is a brilliant storyteller. Why does he leave out the seventh movement of a perfectly parallel two-part parable? Because he's looking at you and he's looking at me and he's saying, what will, the, what will your choice be? What are you going to do? I've come to find you. Are you going to accept me finding you? I hope that as we've been going through this parable, you see that the Father's love, the Father's grace is so broad that it can find anybody. I mean, think about the younger brother. Here's this out in the open, honest sinner, right? He says to his daddy, I hate you. I wish you were dead. Give me, I'm gonna go do my stuff. The older brother, look, the older brother is not a works righteousness guy. That's not what's going on here. He doesn't think he earns the father. The older brother is a secret sinner. And some of you know these people. Right? These people that maybe you're not like the younger brother running off and you live through the 60s and, and there's like Polaroid pictures and line and charcoal line drawings to prove it. Some of you, you grow up and your sin is all hidden and it's all inside. Jesus' love is big enough to find the open sinner and the secret sinner and whatever kind of sinner you are. That's, that's what's going on here. Now, let me show you one last thing. Go back to verse 12. The younger son, it says, asked for his share of the property. Notice the younger son of them said to his father, give me, sorry, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Now in Greek, it's, 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 the word used there for property is only used one time in the whole Bible right here. So when Jesus was telling the story, he used a rare word. And it only means property. It means physical property. He doesn't ask for his inheritance because his inheritance actually is responsibility to take care of. He asked for, I want the money. Now, interestingly, notice the last part of verse 12. And the father divided his property between them. Here's the catch. 
The son asked for my share of the Husia property. The father divided his bios. Uses a different Greek word. Bios. You know this word. Life. The son asked for my share of the money. And the father gave, divided his life between the son. Now, look, the third meaning of bios is um, livelihood. But it's a way of referring to the inheritance that fills it with this other dimension of meaning. In other words, think about this. Think what's going on. The son said, I want my share of the property. And the father says, okay, I'll give it to you. And it'll take my life to do that. And that's what Jesus has done with all of us. With every single one of us, we want our freedom. We feel God as a drag. We feel his boundaries as burdens. We want to take the gifts he's given us and live life without him. And he lets us do it. We want to crucify God. And he lets us. He lets us in the name of our freedom take his life. Because he knows that if we will take his life, That is the path for him to do what's going on on the front of the worship guide. To take our shame. Not only the shame we deserve, but the shame we pour out. He'll take it all. Look at that painting. It's unbelievable. It's by this Russian artist that you can feel live through the gulag, right? He's there. He's taking all of the shame, all of the condemnation. And he knows that if we will let that, if we will do that, if we will take the hammer and do what we really want to do, He can turn that into the thing that brings our shalom, that brings our reconciliation. So look, the father goes out of the party and he begs the son to come into the party, to come in and to be reconciled. This is the story of the Bible. In in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul is in the middle of one of his most intense, dense theological argument. And in the midst of it, he said, the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's what the father's doing in this story. And that's what he does for you. I hope you will take him up on his offer. I hope you will let him find you. And, And look, The life I live by faith in the Son of God, it's this double entendre. It's both that the Son of God is faithful to me and his incredible faithfulness to me that would go to the cross elicits from me a faith in him. That's what it did to the younger son. The love of the father won the younger son's love and allegiance. And that father offers the same thing to the older son and he offers it to you. He went to the cross for you. Will you remember that? And will you let that awaken in you a responding faithfulness and love? Let's pray.